Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 103, Joseph Warren, Founding Martyr. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're going to chat with author Christian Despina about all things Joseph Warren. We'll start with his boyhood on an apple farm in Roxbury and cover his education at Harvard, his rise in politics, his untimely death at the start of the revolution, and the new discovery of living descendants. But before we talk about this founding martyr, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. We imagine that many of you will be so taken with this week's episode that you'll want to visit Dr. Warren and pay your respects. And so we're featuring Forest Hills Cemetery, which also serves as a green space, an arboretum, and a sculpture garden. On March 28, 1848, the Roxbury City Council gave an order for the purchase of the farms of the Severns family to establish a rural municipal park cemetery. Inspired by Mount Auburn Cemetery, Forest Hills was designed by Henry A.S. Dearborn to provide a park-like setting to bury and remember family and friends. In the year the cemetery was established, another 14 and a half acres were purchased from John Parkinson. This made for a little more than 71 acres at a cost of $27,894. The area was later increased to 225 acres. In 1893, the first crematorium in Massachusetts was added to the cemetery, along with other features like a scattering garden, an indoor columbarium, and an outdoor columbarium. In 1927, anarchists Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti were cremated here after their executions. Their ashes were later returned to Italy. In addition to Dr. Warren, other notable occupants include E.E. E. Cummings, William Lloyd Garrison, Lucy Stone, and William Dawes, who, not so famously, journeyed to Lexington and Concord via the land route as Paul Revere rode across the Charles and departed from Charlestown. Those of you who've been with us since episode 33 know that Forest Hills is Dr. Warren's final, 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 final resting place, his fourth burial site. Today, the grave is marked with a statue erected by the Masons in 2016. We highly recommend a trip to Forest Hills Cemetery for the fall colors, local history, and pleasant walking paths. There's parking on site, or it's a short walk from Forest Hills Station on the Orange Line. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring an author talk on November 1st at the BPL Charlestown branch. Stephanie Shoro will be talking about her latest work, Inside the Combat Zone, the stripped-down story of Boston's most notorious neighborhood. By the time I moved to Boston in 2001, the combat zone was a fading memory of what it had been. But in the 1960s and 70s, it was famous as a den of vice. After the bars and burlesque houses of Scully Square were bulldozed to create Government Center, most of the adult businesses in Boston moved to a corner of Chinatown centered around Washington Street, near the corner of Neyland. The timing coincided with the rise of strip clubs and porn theaters around the country. In Boston, zoning regulations confined these businesses to just a few square blocks in the combat zone. For years, the storefronts along Washington, Boylston, and Neyland Streets were bathed by the glow of neon lights, which brought a sense that anything goes. While gay culture was not yet out of the closet in Boston, the LGBTQ community could find some room to live in the open in the freewheeling combat zone. Prostitutes walked the streets and worked in nearby brothels, while soldiers on leave and sailors on liberty walked the streets looking for a good time. 
While the neighborhood developed a reputation for violent crime, that was probably overstated. Compared to crime rates in other neighborhoods, the combat zone was elevated, but not unparalleled. That isn't to say that terrible things never happened. For one example, check out episode 32, where we tell the story of the serial killer who called himself the Giggler. In that story, the killer's third murder was committed in the combat zone, and he later tried to confess to an arson in the combat zone that killed 11 people. In her talk at the Charlestown Library, Shora will discuss how the combat zone came to be, and then its decline, introducing, as the event page says, the players and tragedies behind this audacious social experiment heralded across the nation as the solution to the pornography epidemic. The event is free and open to the public beginning at 6 p.m. And now it's time for this week's main topic, our interview with Christian Despina, author of Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero. So Christian, welcome to the show. First of all, before we even start, can you just remind us who Joseph Warren was and why he was so important to the revolutionary era? I think that's one of the questions I get most frequently. Why Why don't we know about him? Why isn't he more discussed? Um, but I think he was important for several reasons. So he, along with Samuel Adams, is one of the most active revolutionaries in the decade leading up to 1775 from the Stamp Act to the Townsend Acts, to the massacre, to the Tea Party, to the Suffolk Resolves, to Lexington and Concord, the skirmishes in between Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. And I think the shame is that Warren is killed when he's 34. He's killed a year before the Declaration of Independence is declared. So I think if you took any of the men that we now esteem as the founding fathers, and if you kill them off at the age of 34 or 35 or somewhere in that area and kill them off, even if you extend their life to 1776, they're not going to be founding fathers. And one example I like to think of is, I think of David McCullough's biography, John Adams. Mm-hmm. If we end John Adams' life at the age of 40 in 1776 in July after he signed the Declaration, the McCullough book ends before Chapter 1 is even finished. That's a good perspective on it. So I think everybody who knows Joseph Warren knows a lot about Joseph Warren's death, his martyrdom at the Battle of Bunker Hill. But your book is very unique in that it explores the whole of his life. So can you take us back to Joseph Warren's roots? He was... He's born in 1741, and he grows up on a farm in Roxbury. So to start us out, can you describe what Roxbury itself would have been like at that time, and then what the Warren household in Roxbury would have been like? Right. Well, I think there's few vestiges left in actual Roxbury. Obviously, it's much different now than it was then. And after doing a lot of the research initially after the first few years and then traveling to Roxbury, it was sort of a culture shock or a splash of ice water in the face. But it would have been very hilly. There would have been a number of orchards, farms, um, several meeting houses, and Roxbury connected to Boston via the Isthmus, which was a 40-yard wide little road that connected Boston to Roxbury. Because, you know, we think of Boston was a town, but it was really a, a peninsula that was connected to the mainland through this, this, what was called Roxbury Neck. And this was one of the questions I had early on in the research. What, what was the social standing of Warren's family? Was, 
was his father a gentleman? And then you look at the Harvard records and see that Warren was ranked 27th in a class of, I believe, 43, which tells you that since rank was based on the social standing of one's parents, you saw that Warren's social standing within the community was quite low. But Warren's father was referred to as a gentleman when he died, and he did own a farm and orchards, and he was a Roxbury selectman. So he did have some standing in the community, but he was definitely not part of that social elite of politicians and wealthy merchants like a Hancock or a Jeremiah Lee or a Thomas Hutchinson. So his his social standing was definitely not within that upper stratosphere of, of standing. Yeah, we were surprised to learn that his family owned enslaved African-Americans when he was young because, you know, we too didn't think the family was wealthy enough to be able to afford slaves. How did that come to be? You know, and this is, and this is, you know, th there are quite a few frustrating things when you're, when you're doing the research. And, and this was one of them because we see that the slaves are mentioned too in the probate will of Warren's father. It's, it's an older man who's a slave and a younger girl. We don't know how they acquired them, how long they had them. We do know that when Joseph Warren did rent property in Boston in 1770, part of that deal did include, uh, a, a younger slave, but um, the, 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 the short answer is we actually really don't know how they acquired them or how long they did have enslaved African Americans, but, but we do know that they, they did participate in that institution of slavery. Going back to, to Warren's life, if you read his later, his papers, his orations, it's clear that he was an educated man. You mentioned his Harvard education. How did somebody from the background Joseph Warren came from end up with the opportunity to get a Harvard education and, and go on to be a physician. Again, I think that the family did place, place a premium on education. And we know that some of Warren's ancestors, one was named Robert Califf, and he had been involved uh, with the Salem witch trials where he had taken a stand against the Mather family and other prominent families who were supporting these witch trials. And that his mother was referred to as two monikers, Captain Samuel Stevens and Dr. Samuel Stevens. And we do know that Warren had a close relationship with his maternal grandfather. But Warren is sent to Roxbury Latin School in Roxbury, which was the precursor institution to Harvard, where you're prepared to learn the classics. And so he does take this test. So the test at Harvard is mostly uh, an oral examination and Warren goes in the summer of 1756 and he passes the examinations and he begins, like I said, he begins his career at Harvard, but he begins with a low ranking. And I believe he was 14 years old. And I, and if memory serves, I think there was only one other entering freshman who was as young as Warren. So you can imagine the disadvantage he's starting out at in Harvard, where he's not only the youngest, but he's very low ranked within that ranking system, which means that he's going to be placed with other low ranking students. But the fascinating thing about Warren was that somehow he's able to sort of elbow his way out of this mediocrity. And you see that through these Harvard records that he's rooming with first rate scholars in his junior and senior year which is an amazing thing because by all rights, he should have been rooming throughout his four years at Harvard with other lower rank students. But by his junior and senior year, he's actually rooming with, I think, the number two and number eight scholar. Can you tell us a little more about what is the ranking system? And I had no background on that before reading, and I was 
wondering when did it stop and like what did it mean at that time right so it's not a finite system and and understandably we can imagine sort of the resentment that a lot of the students had usually at the the bottom end and the higher end of the yeah poor 45 geez right so to give you an example so the the highest ranked student within those four years of Warren's classroom is, is Jonathan Trumbull, who's the son of the Connecticut governor. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gives you an idea of that upper echelon. Mm-hmm. So that system was also changeable. So if someone was caught doing something, like I saw an example in one of the records that a student was, was throwing, quote, brickbats through the tutor's windows. So they demoted him eight grades, you know, eight, eight demotions within the ranking. And then they said they had a student who came from a distant colony and they weren't really aware of the student's parents' social standing. So they moved him up a certain amount of ranks within the social standing. But pretty much once you were assigned that ranking, that that was basically it. But it's just, it, it really did strike me that, and I can't stress this enough, but by the, by hit the end of his four years at Harvard, the fact that Warren is rooming with these first rate scholars, these high rank students, it, 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 it's just kind of incredible when you think about it in retrospect that he was able to, to even accomplish that. And by most primary and secondary source accounts that exist from that time period through the, the graduation ceremony commencement, that they, they do refer to Warren as a first rate scholar. So that's interesting. It's a ranking system that's as much about social standing as it is about academic standing. It's all about social standing at this time. So it's a very hierarchical society, but the social ranking of the student is based on nothing else other than the social ranking of his parents. It has nothing to do with the academics. Now, speaking of Joseph Warren's parents, while he was at Harvard, the family endures a a devastating loss. Can you describe what happened? Yes. So obviously it was the height of the apple harvest season it's in october of 1756 and warren's father at the time would have been around 50 years old and so when you start reading the accounts of how they have to pick these apples back then they have these obviously these these long wooden ladders and they have to now i've seen some of these warren russet trees through the direct descendants family. So some of the descendants have these trees on, on their farm and they can grow to about 25 to 30 feet in height at maturity. So they're going to have to navigate this, this ladder and get to the top of those trees and then gently twist and pick the apple. And what happened is he, Warren's father lost his footing and fell. And by all accounts, from what we could tell, broke his neck and died within a few minutes. Now, the interesting thing is that most of the historical accounts state that Warren was likely at Harvard. But when you look at the Harvard records and you look at their vacation schedules, Harvard would have been closed the day Warren's father died because it would have been the first vacation that the students had, which was about two weeks. So in all likelihood, Warren would have been back at the farm helping his family during this very busy time of the apple harvest season, harvesting these apples. So in, in, in my estimation, Warren would have been back at the farm and present when his father died. So he may have witnessed it himself. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, I've always when I, whenever I've read about Joseph Warren's life, I've always heard that he was away at Harvard. Right, when and his Harvard was died. closed, so they would have and students were not allowed to stay there; they had to leave. And given that Warren would have only been at Harvard for a couple of months, in all likelihood, given the fact that Warren was the eldest son, and that all three brothers would have been too young to really help the father, he most likely would have been back on the farm helping the father. So you wrote that the funeral cost the equivalent of 800 days of pay for a typical laborer. So why were funerals so expensive? You know, it was just part of the ceremony at the time. What 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 the ceremonies did involve was hiring a team of horses and a casket and presenting these mourning rings, which which I found fascinating because in addition to buying white gloves for the funeral attendees, Usually the family of the deceased would buy mourning rings for the people who attended. And this kind of ties into a little bit of information I uncovered about Warren later on about a mourning ring that he had specifically made for his wife. But when you start reading these accounts and you start seeing the funeral costs associated with having this funeral, it's it's almost madness when you think, I, I can't believe what these people are spending for this. And what happens is during these, during the Townsend Acts and when they're starting the early activities of resistance against the British, what they're doing is they're starting these non-importation policies. So what happens is, is that Adams and Warren really take the lead and say, we are not going to indulge in these elaborate funerals and the costs associated with that. And so when Warren's grandmother dies, he takes the lead. And what they do is they have a very muted, plain ceremony, which is really lauded by a lot of the patriots saying, this this is what we need to be doing. We should not be spending these lavish amounts of money and and, and buying goods from the British to have these funerals. It's interesting. I, I wasn't really familiar with what a an average farmer's funeral would have been like at that time. But you hear about these huge productions that are the funerals of the massacre victims or of Christopher Sider or Snyder mm-hmm. and vast sums are spent because it's this, it's essentially a political event, a political statement. But I, I wasn't really aware of how that compared to an average farmer's funeral just shortly before. And then this idea that, oh, we should, we should stop having these elaborate outlays for average funerals. Right. And then, we, you know, I found the primary source account that, that I believe it was John Rowe that talks about the mourning rings he's collecting from all these years of going to funerals. Now, there is, it's a little bit later, um, but if any of our listeners are interested in an example of a mourning ring like that, at the Shirley Eustace house in Roxbury, where Nikki and I were once docents, um, there is a family mourning ring from uh, the Eustace family, William Eustace's family in the early 19th century. But it was, I think, a similar style to what would have been used at that time. So go visit the Shirley Eustace house in the season and look at their ring. Now, I guess shifting gears a little bit, the Warren family name gets tied to generations of medical advances in Boston. Uh, today, as we're recording this Yesterday was Ether Day, which celebrates the first demonstration of a surgical anesthetic by John Collins Warren at Mass General Hospital. A lot of that reputation for the the Warren family being tied to medicine starts with Joseph. So as he graduates from Harvard and starts a medical practice, can you tell us what his practice would have been like? What was a physician doing in the 1760s or the 1770s? Well, and I think it's important to to know that there was no medical school at this point. So 
the options were that either you could go and you could apprentice over in Europe, or you could choose and hopefully get an apprenticeship with a local physician. And to, to Warren's luck, he was able to do an apprenticeship with a Dr. James Lloyd. And Lloyd had done his apprenticeship over in the glittering capitals of Europe, where he becomes an expert in surgery and obstetrics and smallpox inoculations. And he brings back this honed technical skill to Boston and sets up shop. Now, Lloyd is wealthy. He's socially connected. He's a horticulturalist. He's entertaining lavish parties at his house. And part of the apprenticeship would have been Warren living for a time under Lloyd's roof. So not only is Warren learning these technical methods and these up-to-date medical skills, but he's also learning how to become a gentleman. And you see this transformation happening with Warren's own clothing and He's being exposed to a world beyond that Roxbury farm and even Harvard, where he's now rubbing elbows with some of the elite and he's mastering the nuances of a bedside manner. And so really important are Warren's medical journals that are housed at the Massachusetts Historical Society. But what has never really been deconstructed before are the volumes of records kept by Warren's supplier of medical supplies and medicines, which was a Mr. Greenleaf and those records. So for 10 years, Warren is buying all kinds of items from Greenleaf for his practice, which would include um, a glister pipe for administering, administering enemas. And he's buying penis syringes, which is treating sexual diseases. And he's using things like opium to treat diarrhea and as a cough suppressant. So in addition to treating patients, Warren has also become skilled in obstetrics, and he's also making and mixing his own medicines, and he's also performing amputations and resetting shoulders. So you can see from Warren's medical ledgers that he's he's becoming a very, very skilled physician, and he's also championing the smallpox inoculations when that outbreak happens in the winter of 1764. So that's the year when and we we've talked about this on the podcast a little bit before uh but that's the year when John Adams comes into the city of Boston from his farm in Braintree to get himself and I believe his brothers inoculated yes and Warren inoculates Adams brother and then that's when we have the earliest description of Warren's physical appearance when John Adams writes about about Joseph Warren and and him administering the smallpox inoculation to John Adams brother And that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) Yes, to say the least. And one of the great things was, is by locating, so, so every history to this point has claimed that Joseph Warren's direct bloodline was extinct. And many, many years ago, I was able to find some of Warren's living descendants. And the one I have connected with is the family historian. And he took me to his aunt's farm, which happens to be in Virginia. She pulled out a whole host of items that she had had, family heirlooms. And one of them was a, um, a silver, uh, silver spoon ladle that would have been given for the christening as a present for the christening of a child. And it was from John Adams to Joseph Warren. So it was just a nice little piece of material culture connecting the two even more. I would love to see that. I have a picture that I can send you. (laughs) Actually, um, would it be all right for us to put that in the show notes for this week's episode? Sure, absolutely. Because as everyone who listens to our podcast knows, we are 
Team Adams for life. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of the great loves of Joseph Warren's life, he married Elizabeth Hooten in 1764. So can you tell us a little bit about her background and what their courtship was like? And here's another frustrating part of the story. So there has been literally nothing about Elizabeth Hooten Warren other than a death notice and a marriage notice and nothing else. So I was fortunate enough to come by her father's probate will, which I was able to deconstruct a little bit and see exactly. Now, Hutan's father died several months before. I was able to find out that her father was a Mason, but he was a Mason of St. John's Lodge. And that when Joseph and Elizabeth are married in September of 1764, she really inherits the lion's share of her father's inheritance, which included half of what was known as Hutan's Wharf and all the buildings located therein. She also I'm going to have to dig out a map to see which yes, wharf was and, Hutan's and, wharf. And I was able to locate, um, and I don't have it in front of me, but but the general vicinity of where it was. And she also inherited some cash and some goods. And so what I was also able to deconstruct is, is when I looked at some of these Warren family heirlooms, we were able to find that Joseph Warren had a fifth child who had died in infancy named Mary. And I was able to cross-reference this with the Brattle Street baptismal records, which did coincide with this family tree that did notate the birth of one of the other children, which coincided with the years. But also that this morning ring that I came across that Joseph had made when Elizabeth died. And just to get back to the Hutan's wharf point, the amazing thing was that a week before Elizabeth died, Joseph and Elizabeth sign over the entire inheritance of that wharf to Joseph Warren's brother, Ebenezer. And we don't really know why. The, what, what I was kind of speculating was that it seemed that this was around when things were really heating up and there was a strong presence of British troops in Boston. And we can speculate that he might have done that to get that wharf out of his name and give it to his brother in case he was arrested on treason, that it would not have been confiscated, would have been able to remain in the family. But I thought it was interesting that they did it literally about a week before Elizabeth passed away. Yeah, I guess had the war turned out differently, that would have been a, a likely outcome. We see that loyalists lost their property, most exactly. of their possessions, anything they couldn't carry away during the evacuation in March of 1776. So if it had gone the other way, it wouldn't be at all unreasonable to think that somebody as visible and vocal and very outspoken right. as Joseph Warren would have been uh, under some sort of uh, banishment act right. in reverse. And the other the other interesting thing, if I can add about Elizabeth Hutan Warren, is I was able to find through primary source documents that her painting had not been painting by John Singleton Copley, but it had been done by Copley's half-brother, Henry Pelham. Yeah, so let's back up for us. Just a, a minute. Mm -hmm. There was there's a very famous, very famous portrait by Copley of Joseph Warren. Right. And then also at the MFA, there's a portrait of I think it's titled Mrs. Joseph Warren or something like that. And after reading your book, I had to go and look, I had always thought that that was also a Copley. But then reading your notes, I looked at it, first of all, with a critical eye and said, that doesn't the the eyes don't really look like a Copley. And then I looked at the notation on the MFA website and it just says, I think it's attributed to the circle of Copley, something like that. So it's not directly attributed to. Well, Copley for years anymore. it was attributed to Copley, right. but then it changed, I believe with the Jules Prawn 
um, book where it said it was someone within Copley Circle, but I did find the definitive primary source document that does tell us that it was indeed painted by Henry Pelham, who was also the person that Paul Revere had stolen the Boston Massacre engraving from. Yep. And who made one of my very favorite revolutionary era maps of Boston. So one thing that having portraits by Copley and Copley's circle, apparently Henry Pelham, means is that the Warren family's fortunes are increasing in this period. Uh, Copley's considered one of the, the greatest painters of his era in North America, in Boston, and eventually in Europe as well. So as the success of the family is growing, are there other ways that Joseph and Elizabeth Warren are showing off their fortune? Oh, absolutely. Um, we see that Joseph Warren had purchased a home in West Boston, and there's pages and pages of primary source documents detailing all the custom construction projects that he was having performed in the house, whether it was the shingles and he was having uh, windows built and kitchens and wells and just an incredible amount of work, painters, carpenters. It's also been wondered before, did Joseph Warren own a horse? And I was able to find in one of the primary source documents that Joseph Warren did indeed own horses, but he also had his carriage painted vermilion. Now, that color is significant because it is the single most expensive color at the time, and it's in high fashion in London. So I like to joke around and say it would be watching a pink Bentley drive by with a fountain in the back. <laughs> but we also know, and and and, and I thank J.L. Bell for this, because J.L. Bell also brought to my attention that John Hancock himself had a carriage painted vermilion in 1767, I believe. Warren's was painted in, I believe, 1773. But it's just, it's just a little, you know, it's just another material culture piece that speaks to his rising social status within the community. The fact that he's having this lavish home built, because we, we also find that Warren's renting in 1770 a home from the Green family, but, but social, high, high social status people in Boston did not rent homes. They lived in opulent mansions. And this is what Warren was building in West Boston while he was renting this property from the Green family in 1770. So on the subject of their fortunes, I think I read that, again, as an adult, once once his wealth began to grow, that Joseph Warren and his family owned enslaved people again. Is that correct? There's a reference when he rents this this property from the Green family that, that it's going to include a slave boy. And it includes, I think Warren bought him for, I think, 20 pounds worth of potter's ware, I believe the quote was, and that the agreement was that if he did not want to keep the enslaved boy, that he could return the the enslaved child back to the Green family. But this, this is where the trail hits a dead end. It's the only reference to a slave in Warren's adult life, and it's from this this document that speaks of the exchange between Warren and the Green family about renting that property on Hanover Street. So that's interesting and a little disturbing that you rent a house and it comes with right with a person his, exactly so i mean you know and you, and you can't whitewash the history i mean you know it's th- th- that's 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 the reality of the situation that that warren's family did own slaves when he was a child and he did own a slave for for a certain period of time as an adult did you ever get a sense of whether warren reflected 
on that at all. And especially as he starts speaking out for Liberty, doing the, the massacre orations and, um, these very public appeals to the sense of liberty. Do you get the sense that he had an idea of the conflict between holding somebody in bondage and appealing to liberty? Or is that something that didn't cross his mind? No, I, I think he definitely would, would have thought about it. I think we also have to put ourselves in the context of the times. And I, I just, you know, when you, when you think about was it socially acceptable at that point to own slaves? I mean, there were very few people outspoken about it, you know, wealthy white men of property. But I, I, I definitely don't think there was a moral, there was definitely a moral tussle, I believe, within Warren about knowing that it was somewhat hypocritical to champion liberty and freedom while also owning enslaved people. I mean, I, I just don't think there's any way of getting around that. But ag- again, we, we, we tend to look at this from a 21st century standpoint and it's, it's inexcusable from any century. But when you look at it in the context of the times, I think you can understand a little more, but I still would strongly feel that he, he was aware of that, that, that moral hypocrisy. Yeah. And we've explored on the podcast before the fact that while we didn't have the sort of plantation slavery of the South, there were a lot of enslaved African Americans in Boston and in Massachusetts prior yes. to the uh, John Adams constitution that, that freed them. So Christian, can you tell us about how he makes that jump from medical practice to politics? Right. And, and this is one of the things I found most surprising because Dr. Lloyd remains a loyalist throughout his life. So, and this was one of the questions I had when I began the research more than 20 years ago. It just didn't, it just didn't answer my question because most, most stories or histories I had read about Warren was basically the explanation given as to how he gets involved in the Whig faction is basically Samuel Adams takes him under his wing and molds him into this, you know, Patriot politician, but, but the, the story is much more complex than that. And if I could go back a little further, I would trace it to the land bank controversy. And to sum that up quickly was back in around 1740, there was a shortage of shortage of specie. And so what some of the, some people did, they got together and created what they called the land bank. And what that did was it gave notes of currency that was backed by land rather than specie, but this specie also- being. Gold, gold silver, right. right. So this, this created a political faction because the wealthy merchants and the politicians did not want these farmers and these mechanics creating that system of money. So what happened is with backing from London, they dissolved this land bank. And what happens is this creates a financial nightmare for the principal investors of the land bank. And two of the most principal investors in that land bank are Samuel Adams' father, and Joseph Warren's maternal grandfather. So when you look at these primary source records, these newspaper documents, you're seeing for 20 years that Joseph Warren's maternal grandfather is mired in these horrific financial lawsuits. And at one point, he's selling off farm animals and items, uh, some of his possessions to pay off these debts. And so it's also been speculated that part of Samuel Adams' bitterness towards England and this growing political divide stemmed from his father's own nightmare involved in the land bank controversy. So this was a common denominator. I think that both of them could have agreed on because Warren was close with his maternal grandfather and throughout 
the 1740s, 1750s, 1760s, this controversy continues for his grandfather. So when Warren is doing his medical apprenticeship with Lloyd, Lloyd's already a staunch loyalist. So again, we think all this patronage that Joseph Warren gets in his early years when he's beginning his medical career, he had known Thomas Hutchinson for years. Thomas Hutchinson had helped settle the estate of his father when his father had died. Thomas Hutchinson appoints him as an administrator of the Nathaniel Wheelwright estate, which was a horrendous financial bankruptcy that occurred in 1765. Warren is a physician of the almshouse, which was an appointed position that Warren received. So Warren is getting a lot of political patronage from these politicians, from these loyalists. And when you look at these Harvard records, you also see that Warren is rubbing elbows with a lot of these first families in Massachusetts, the Hutchinsons, the Olivers, the Hallowells. So by all rights, Warren really should have been a loyalist, which makes it even more amazing that he became a Whig. So one of the records I had come across in the Massachusetts Historical Society was a journal entry in Warren's ledger about Samuel Adams. And what I noticed was is that this was in June 1768, and Warren spells Adams' names wrong. He spells it A-D-A-M-E-S. Now, we know there was a lot of you know, bad handwriting. But when you look at Warren's handwriting in this early medical ledger, I mean, the, the handwriting is almost Hancockian. I mean, it, the penmanship is beautiful. And he also writes that Samuel Adams was the Speaker of the House of Representatives, but he wasn't. He was the clerk. And I also found a document stating that Warren gave, along with about two other men, gave Samuel Adams money to help pay off his debts. So when Warren enters this political faction, he's already got his political beliefs. And I question the relationship between Adams and Warren because Warren would have been an attractive candidate to the Whig faction. He's a Harvard graduate. He's a doctor. He's becoming a man of social standing within the community. He's gaining wealth. He's smart. He's well-spoken. When Warren does hook up with Adams, I believe that Warren is already bringing a strong held political belief that he buys into this patriot cause and is against these oppressive policies being implemented by parliament in Britain. So I, again, I did question that relationship and I do believe that Warren held some really firm beliefs when he entered that Whig faction. So as he's being mentored by Lloyd and, and then meeting Samuel Adams and eventually John and Abigail Adams, he's entering into this world of Whig politics in Boston. What do you think his personal political aspirations were like? Was he ambitious? Was he seeking office? Was he humble? Was he happy to work behind the scenes? Do you have any sense of what he, what future he foresaw for himself in entering into Whig politics in Boston? I do. And it's backed up by a letter that he had written when he sends his fiance and his four children out to the Dix family farm in Worcester, Mass. And basically he writes a letter stating that he wants this Dr. Dix to buy an extra, I believe it was 14 or 15 acres because he's talking about, you know, now that the, now that his family is out there, he's talking about spending the next year or two involved in farming. So I, I don't feel that Warren, you know, a lot of the history say that, you know, well, Warren got killed because of his unbounding ambition and, you know, he was motivated by power. And, I, and, and I'm going to take the opposite stance on that based not only on this letter, but the fact that 
I think because Warren's killed at Bunker Hill that the events of his entire life get reduced to one single afternoon, right? He's the, he's, he becomes the martyr, he becomes the first American martyr. So basically his whole life is in this one afternoon, but, but we lose that human side of Warren, given the fact that he did have a fiance. He had four small orphan children. He, he had a personal life. We, we, we just kind of see this calcified marble statue, but, but there was a human element to this. And I'm not convinced that Warren was motivated by power or personal glory. And, you know, we can start talking about, you know, the virtue of honor. But I, again, just to answer that question, I, I don't believe that Warren was um, motivated by power. So, of course, it's really hard to speculate on, you know, how far his star would have risen had he survived the Battle of Bunker Hill. But are there indicators that we can look at in terms of his accomplishments and his fame that, you know, give you a sense of what might have been in store for Joseph Warren? Well, I mean, we know, and again, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that this is Boston 1775 and it's not Yorktown 1783. And a lot of people will say, well, you know, Washington's Washington, but no, Washington is not Washington in 1775. When Washington arrives in Cambridge in July of 1775, two weeks after Warren's killed, Washington has not been involved in a military conflict in almost 20 years. Nobody knows who Washington was. I mean, even John Adams wrote in a letter in 1774 uh, something to the effect of, of, I've never heard this name Washington before. Who is this man? So Washington had yet to achieve that everlasting glory. And having said that, I think Washington still becomes Washington if Warren lives. It, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Warren would have been involved in, in, in some way in the army, maybe, maybe as continuing as a major general, maybe becoming part of Washington staff. I don't think it's a stretch to say that like William Eustis and John uh, Hancock and Samuel Adams, that Warren could have become a governor of Massachusetts. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that Warren would have gone on to become president of the United States. I don't know if I would say that, although anything's possible. But, I, but yeah, I think I think that Warren would have continued in some capacity with the army and and during the American Revolution, and I think he would have been involved in politics at the local level in Massachusetts. So yeah, I don't think that's that would be a stretch to speculate that. Now I I want to come back to his military role at the outbreak of the revolution. But before that, let me just touch on his personal life again. So after Elizabeth Hooton Warren die or Hutan Warren dies, Joseph Warren is lucky enough not that long afterwards to have a second great romance with a, a woman named Mercy Scully. Can you tell us how they met and what their courtship was like? We don't know how they met. I mean, there's very little known about her in these early years of the revolution. I was able to uncover a letter she had written to her cousin that had never been published before that was in a miscellaneous bound volume at the Massachusetts Historical Society, which is the earliest known letter written in her hand. And it's written the day the Port Act takes effect in Boston on June 1st, 1774. And when you read this letter, it's kind of remarkable to see what a passionate patriot she is and she's lamenting the fate of boston and the citizens of the subjects of boston and how cruel the the evil yoke of uh, british tyranny is but we do know that by i will say by definitely by the the winter late winter early spring of of 75 that they are 
engaged and that she is a big part of his life. But, you know, and the funny thing is that there's a lot of controversy after Warren dies where John Warren and Ebenezer Warren, his brothers come and take the four children. And this is basically gut wrenching for Mercy as she relays in some of her letters. And John Warren is basically saying, you know, I've never heard my brother talk about you in any capacity, which is not that surprising given that w when Warren is burning his political correspondence, his personal papers, when he's in engaged in these spy activities, I don't think it would have been uncommon for him not to really speak about the relationship with Mercy Scully, but I was able to come across the secondary source documents that talk about how both Warren and Mercy Scully engraved their names in the windows of the homes they were staying at while they were separated between the battles of Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, which lends more credence to the fact that they were likely engaged and the fact that the children were in her care. So I do not believe that she was just a governess for the children or taking care of the children. There was real feeling there. And when you read her subsequent letters over the years, I mean, the sad thing is, I guess, similar to Alexander Hamilton's wife, Mercy Scully lives for about 50 years she never remarries. She tries to help take care of the children and some of the children, some of Warren's children live with her for a little while and she does help with their education. And she dies, I believe it was 1826. And it's, it's just, it's just sad because she dies basically heartbroken and alone all those years later. And she, she speaks of Warren in these letters throughout the years and how much she loved him and how she laments her fate of spending a half century without him. I have to say the idea of them both engraving their the the names in the windows is very cute as long as I'm not their landlord. <laughs> so coming back to Warren's military experience and uh, the experiences he has at the very outbreak of fighting in 1775 to the extent that people remember Joseph Warren's name today it seems to be for two things that he dispatched Paul Revere on his famous ride mm -hmm. and that he died during the battle of Bunker Hill. But that's not the only military experience he has after the war begins. Um, and from your book, I realized that he, I guess I already knew that he had experienced the fighting at monotomy, but he also experienced fighting doing during two of the battles on the Boston Harbor islands. Can you tell us about both those experiences? Right. So, I mean, the, the earliest, introduction Warren would have had to military drilling was at Harvard and it was the beginning of the Marty Mercurian band and and we see Harvard records discussing how the senior sophisters were participating in these military drills in Warren's senior year in 1759 so we know that Warren was exposed to that back in 1759 so and also as we know that one of the books that Warren had in his library was called Diseases Incident to Armies. So we can, we can see that Warren does, Warren is thinking both as a soldier and as a physician when it comes to battles and battlefields. But, you know, it's just odd to me. And, and one of the things I found was that Warren dispatched Revere from a different location than history has told us these past few centuries. He dispatched Revere from the Chardon house, which was, near the green property, but by 1772, Warren had left that greenhouse. So he did not dispatch Revere and Dawes from the greenhouse. He actually dispatched them from the Chardon home. And what's amazing to me is that we know it as Paul Revere's ride when basically Warren, it's, it's, it's Warren that dispatches <laughs> Revere, but Warren's the one that goes and almost gets killed and is participating in the fighting. Revere wasn't. 
And then, as you mentioned, there's these two battles slash skirmishes that happen on Noddles and Grapes Island. And, you know, there is, there is scant source documentation about them, but I've found letters talking about Warren being at these battles and talking about fighting going on and, and firing of weapons and Warren is there. And so when you put Lexington and Concord and Noddles Island and Grapes Island, those two skirmishes, Lexington and Concord battles and Bunker Hill, Warren is the only one. He's the only person who's personally engaged in the fighting at all four of these battles. And when you start to think about it, you say, well, where are the founding fathers? None of them are there other than Warren. He's the only one who's actively participating in these fighting battles. You know, one of the things is that, that we mentioned is his direct bloodline and how many of them have been West Point graduates and military officers that have been involved in almost every American conflict since the Civil War. Yeah. So how did you uncover that lineage? So it's funny because years ago uh-huh. I was Googling things on the computer and I was looking for something about Warren. It was um it was a magazine that he had been mentioned in. And I had gotten to like page twelve on Google and I found this 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 store that was in Virginia that claimed that they were the descendants of Warren. And so I called up and I said, Hey, I, I just, you know, I'm calling because I'm curious. You, 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 the owners are claiming they're direct descendants of a Dr. Joseph Warren. And, and she said, Oh yes, they are. And she said, well, I'm going to put you in touch with the family historian. And so I was very skeptical. And the first night he, he, you know, I left a message and I think he called me back maybe a month or two later. And we were on the phone for about five hours and I almost felt like a detective grilling him with all these questions. And by, and then I thought, you know, can this be real? Is this true? I mean, this was only, it was only about four or five years into my research, but I had read all the histories that said, well, his bloodline's extinct. And I remember tracing it and they sort of die out at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, but I just wasn't convinced. And then, you know, we started a friendship and he had taken me to the aunt's house and shown me all those material culture pieces and pieces of furniture that he had. And it just, it just kind of breathed life back into the story. And I found out there, there were about 30 of them that were still alive and they boast a long line of military officers, West Point graduates. There is, um, the current trustee of the Warren painting at MFA Boston is, is a doctor at Baylor University and she gives out an annual Dr. Joseph Warren prize. You know, you're able to, you're writing a biography about something and then all of a sudden you find that they have direct descendants and you're just able to deconstruct it and approach it in a way that's never been done before. So Warren is an incredible orator. And as the host of a scripted podcast, we often struggle to read other people's writing out loud. And sometimes we even struggle to read our own writing out loud. I but always struggle to read my own writing always. out loud. But Warren's speeches, they roll right off the tongue. Um, so I'm curious just what your favorite speech or passage is from Warren. Just to answer the question a little bit more thoroughly, if you don't mind, I, I think part of that skill comes from his days at Harvard, where at the time, President Holyoke decided that he was going to have the students start delivering orations of these Latin passages. So, so we know that Warren was delivering speeches in Harvard Hall and in Latin. So, I mean, he sort of had a knack for this, you know, from an early age. But I guess, you know, the, the one, the one I love the most is when, when, uh, during Ronald Reagan's inaugural speech in, uh, 
what was it, 79 or 80, where he quotes Joseph Warren from his Boston Massacre oration. And he's talking about act worthy of yourselves. He's, he's speaking to future generations of millions unborn. And it's just, there's also another quote that was delivered from an earlier oration where he's talking about the brutality of the boy. I mean, and obviously you see he's politicizing the event, but he just had such a way with words when he's talking about the brains of his brethren be splattered on the cobblestone street. It's just, again, you said he, it's, it's just, he had such a way with words and, and we know from various primary source documents that he was an eloquent speaker and that he did have a great effect on the audiences present. So it was just, it was just one of his many skills. I mean, obviously he had a great charisma and he did it through his writing, through his speeches on the battlefield. I mean, it's just a check. You can just check off every point that would have made him such a charismatic leader. And at such a young age, when you think about the ages of all these other founding fathers at the time, you know, in a way, in such a social hierarchical system in Boston, it just doesn't really make sense that Warren would have risen to such political heights at the age he was. So for our listeners' benefit, we'll put the text of at least one of his Boston Massacre orations into okay, the, uh, yeah. the show notes this week so people can can read some of his public uh speeches that we find so stirring i'm sure it'll sound a lot better than what i just said <laughs> oh story of our lives Christian, story of our lives <laughs> we can't all be warrens but we also know that he had a heavy nasal twang just from some of the words he was spelling in his writing yeah i i found that comment in in your text interesting so you feel like you could devise his new england accent from spellings in his papers yes because even I'll get, one example that stands out is the word mahogany and he spells it m-a-h-a-g-a-n-y <laughs> mahogany right <laughs> just like a bostonian might say right <laughs> <laughs> so how did boston react to warren's death they don't know what's happened. And, th- and this has been controversial because there have been two primary source documents within months of his death talking about him being beheaded by British troops on the battlefield. Now, I don't claim that in my book. I don't believe that he was beheaded. But there is a letter from Abigail Adams to John Adams telling him that two soldiers that left the British Army are telling her that there were rumors of Warren being beheaded. And then there's a letter from a Benjamin Hitchborn to John Adams talking about uh, Captain Drew that goes on the battlefield, uh, unearthed Warren, uh, starts spitting on him and cuts his head and brings it to Gage in triumph. Now, I've spoken with a lot of combat veterans and we've talked about this battle. And when you start thinking about the viciousness of this battle of Bunker Hill, that when they do climb over the walls of that redoubt and the hand to hand combat ensues, just think about the humiliation suffered at the British soldiers' hands when they're basically de- humiliated and defeated at Lexington and Concord. They've watched most of their commanding officers drop like flies on the march up to Bunker Hill so that by the time they climb over this redoubt, they're in a blood rage. You don't, you don't expect that they're just going to stop and lay down their arms. There are primary source accounts from both the American and the British sides talking about British soldiers bayoneting corpses, taking the butts of their rifles and beating out the brains of patriots that are on the ground. 
And so it's not known for several days whether or not Warren made it out alive. There's conflicting accounts. Some are saying he was captured. Some are saying he was killed. Some saying he was able to escape. But by the time there are confirmed reports that Warren is killed, I mean, it was just devastating, not only to the friends and family, but the members of the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. So it's just ironic that when Warren is killed a few days after, John Hancock, Samuel Adams, John Adams, all writing Warren letters, asking him to receive Washington to make sure that that transition goes smoothly. And, and, and again, not to General Ward, but to Joseph Warren. So this also underscores how important Warren, Warren was in Boston. And when word finally arrives at the Continental Congress about a week after, I mean, it's just devastating. And you see the letters that Samuel Adams is writing, John Hancock, John Adams, you see that there are letters from the soldiers saying, lamenting Warren's death, saying the biggest loss sustained is the death of Dr. Joseph Warren, which is also interesting because they're referring to him as Dr. Joseph Warren, not General Warren. Right. So, and then within the next few months to a year, you start seeing all these elegies and these poems. And there's even an article that refers to Warren, the, the godlike Warren. He He's basically transcending moral status. But this is so important because... Warren becomes the first American martyr because the hero prior to this is General James Wolfe, who dies on the plains of Abraham during the Seven Years' War at the Battle of Quebec. So Warren supplants that. And now Warren is the first distinct American martyr who it's almost like the beginning of the identity of this American culture, that it's it's one of theirs. It was it was patriots against British. They're Americans. And I think in a way it's poignant, but it's also sad because his martyrdom has overshadowed his tremendous accomplishments and contributions to the rebellion movement and the revolution. So in a way it's kind of overshadowed him all these years because again, like I said, the events of a single afternoon overshadow all his contributions in that decade leading up to that battle. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see that outpouring of sentiment about Joseph Warren's death and just that place of martyrdom that he occupied at that time, because you describe him as the forgotten founder. And in the introduction, you say that his contributions faded from American memory. And then later on, in the I think in the last chapter, you t- return to that and say, today, Warren's name is unknown to most Americans. Which it is, and I thought, sadly. I thought you were overselling that point. I, I was, I was really skeptical of that because Nikki and I talk about Warren a lot as folks who host a Boston history podcast. And mm-hmm. Nikki has a little bit of a historical crush on Joseph Warren, <laughs> but I took your book on a camping trip earlier this summer and I was reading the first few chapters and we were all sitting around the, uh, the fire with a, a group of friends and they asked what I had been reading. And I said, Oh, I'm reading this new biography of Joseph Warren. And this group is all intelligent, educated native New Englanders, and not one of them knew who Joseph Warren was. So why do you think that is? Well, you know, again, I think it goes back to the beginning of when we were speaking. And let me just say, I think once you get out of that New England area, it gets even worse. So, you know, my whole life, I was I was born and raised in New York City. We, we moved up to Connecticut for a while. We've been in Virginia for some time. Once you get out of that New England area and you start talking about Joseph Warren, it's, it's who, who is that? And, and then sometimes you'll get people trying, oh, oh, yeah, oh, right. Yeah. He's, he's the one who gets killed at Bunker Hill. But, but even if you get someone who, who legitimately knew he's killed at Bunker Hill, they, they can't tell you anything else about him. 
or they're surprised to learn, wait, he, he's, he's the one who sent Revere on the midnight ride and he did this. But, but honestly, the majority of people that I have broached with this, and, they, and these are people who have an interest in early American history. They do not know who he was. And, and I, I mean, I can't blame them because when you think about it, there has not been much written about him. And I, and I, and I almost feel, uh, resentful. It's almost like this glass half empty approach to his, life. Well, you know, his political papers were destroyed, more papers and his items were lost in, in two accidental house fires in the mid-19th century. You know, we didn't even know where these fires were. I was able to track down where the fires were. But again, I think if I had to give a short answer or a succinct answer, it would it would again be that he he's killed at the age of 34. He dies a year before the Declaration of Independence is declared. His martyrdom overshadows his life. But then if we look at his children, so he's never married to Mercy Scully. So he really has no official wife. And he has two sons and two daughters. And both his son, both his sons die in their early 20s. And they don't have children. So the current direct bloodline, you can trace it to the one surviving daughter, Mary Warren, who had one child from a second marriage who survives infancy. And I think that's also part of the problem. Because if you think about it, you know, think about the first, what, six, seven presidents, you know, the one who had a son had a son become a president. And I think that's also a big part of the problem that Warren's male heirs die relatively obscure and in, in, in their 20s. Well, hopefully your book will help bring some much deserved attention to one of our favorite patriots. So before we let you go, do you have Boston area events that are coming up that people could come out and see? Yes, I will be speaking at the Massachusetts Historical Society on the evening of November the 7th. And earlier that afternoon, I'll be uh, giving an interview on NPR, WBUR in uh, Boston. So if folks want to find out more about you or learn more about the book or more about Joseph Warren, is there a place they can follow you online? Yeah, there's a website, www.foundingmartyr.com. I'm also on Twitter. The handle is at martyr1776. Christian Despina, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, I really appreciate you having me on. To learn more about the life and death of Joseph Warren, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 103. We'll have links to Christian's website and social profiles, as well as a link to buy the book on Amazon. We'll also link to the MFA pages for both Copley's portrait of Joseph Warren and the Henry Pelham portrait of Elizabeth Warren that's attributed to Circle of John Singleton Copley. We'll have links to some of Warren's famous writings, a photo of the Warren birthplace all decked out in patriotic bunting for the nation's centennial on July 4th, 1876, and a map showing how to find Warren's fourth and final resting place at Forest Hills Cemetery. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. While we're at it, don't forget our free sticker promotion. If you'd like to get a handsome Hub History sticker for your car or laptop, just write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Then send us an email with a screenshot of the review or a summary of it, and send us your mailing address, and we'll mail you a sticker. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. And if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's the best way to help others discover the show. 
That's all for now. We'll be back next week.